You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Bhutan on the Calvary Brighton Podcast. What defines you? You know, I mean, what, what do you find your identity in? You know, I mean, uh, nowadays some might, might, might find their identity in, in, their, in their work, you know, what they do for a living, you know, their, their career. They might say, you know, I'm a plumber or, or I'm an attorney or I'm a sales manager, and they find identity in that. Now, others might find their identity in, in, in being an athlete or, or still some might find their identity in being a parent or, or being a spouse, and yet others might find their identity in their sin. They might say something like, well, I'm an alcoholic, or, or I'm an addict, or I'm a recovering alcoholic. And still, others in our culture today might even find their identity in their sexuality. Well, the key phrase in our passage this morning is, is, is that phrase at the beginning of verse 11 when it says, and such were some of you. Such were some of you. And we notice right away that this is past tense. And so what we learn from this passage this morning is that our past does not define us. What we learn is is that our identity is not in our sin. Rather, as Christians, our identity is in Christ. We are a new creation. So now with that in mind, as we go back now to verses 9 through 11, Paul here reminds us who we were who you were before Christ, who you were before you became a Christian, who you were before Jesus came into you and changed you. And so he says again in verse 9, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now again, This is what we were. This is what you were before Jesus came into your life. Now, he starts off in verse 9 by saying that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, that word unrighteous, it comes from the Greek word adikos, which in this context means falling short of righteousness. Falling short of righteousness. And so what it's saying is is that those who fall short of God's righteousness will not inherit the kingdom of God, will not go to heaven. Reminds us of Romans 3.23 that says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Notice it doesn't say that some have sinned. It doesn't say that, 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 that many have sinned. It says that all, every single one of us, myself included, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That word sinned, it's not a very popular word, but it's a necessary word. I've shared the definition before, but the word sin comes from the Greek term harmashia, which which is a Greek word that means to miss the mark, uh, to miss perfection. Now, originally, in in, in its original context, it was used in the the sport of archery. So what they would do is they would set up a target. Now, Now, by target, and I forgot to announce something, but I forgot to announce the axe throwing contest. But anyway, we'll, uh, anyway, we'll, we'll deal with that later. But by target, uh, it's not like this bullseye target that they would put up there and, and you would try to hit uh, and, and you get points for getting close. No, what they would do is, is maybe they put a small little mark on a tree. And you had one chance with an arrow, just one arrow, to hit that mark. And you either hit the mark or you missed the mark, but you didn't get any points for getting close. And so it didn't matter if you missed the mark by a quarter of an inch or by two feet. If you missed the mark, you were out. No exceptions. Well, now, spiritually speaking, the mark that that, that we're aiming at is the mark of God's absolute perfection. And no one has ever hit that mark. 
We, we don't get points for getting close. You either hit the mark spot on or you miss the mark. And so when the Bible says that, that all have sinned and fallen short, it's saying, you know what? None of us have hit that mark. We, we've all fallen short of the mark of absolute perfection. And that's why here, here in verse 9 it says that the unrighteous, that is those who fall short of righteousness, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now with that said, Keep in mind, and, and, I've, and I've mentioned this in the past, but, but the, 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 the ancient city of Corinth, that Greek city of Corinth, was a city that was defined by sin. I mean, they, they, they were famous for their sin, world famous for sin. In, in, in fact, uh, in, in Greek plays, whenever, whenever the, these plays would happen, there was a, a famous Greek phrase, and the phrase was Corinthianizestia, which is a phrase that means to, to play the role of the Corinthian. And so in these, in these Greek plays, anytime they had a, a character who was supposed to play the role of a drunk or, or the role of a drug addict or the role of an immoral person who's sleeping around or whatever it was, they would always say, you're playing the role of the Corinthian. And so they were world famous for their sin. They, 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 they were defined by sin. There's lots of reasons for that, not just the drunkenness and, and all the other things that were happening. But remember, I've described in the past that in Corinth there was a hill. And, and the highest hill in Corinth was called the Acro-Corinth. And at the top of that hill was a world-famous temple called the Temple of Aphrodite. Now this temple housed literally a thousand temple prostitutes. Now at one time in history it housed as many as 10,000 prostitutes. So it's now with, with, with that uh, picture in, in our minds, the, the prostitutes and the drunkenness and all the other stuff, it, it, with that picture as, as our backdrop, now Paul is listing the various lifestyles that all fall short of God's righteousness. I mean, he just said that the unrighteous, that is, those who fall short of righteousness, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And now he gives a demonstration a list of those lifestyles, of what those lifestyles look like that fall short. And so with that in mind, he says in verse 9, Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So now let's break these down. First of all, he says the sexually immoral. Now the word immoral uh, there is the Greek word porneia. Now, porneia is, is a word that really speaks of, of any form of sexual behavior outside of marriage. And so it can include all kinds of things. It, it could include adultery. It could include sleeping around. It, can, it, it could include prostitution. But the word porneia itself, that's the Greek word where we get our word pornography. And so, yeah, it also includes viewing porn. Listen, that's a problem in our culture, isn't it? Even, even among Christians. In fact, one survey says that 70% of Christian men view pornography on a daily basis. And the survey says that 20% of Christian women also view pornography on a daily basis. And that's just the ones who are brave enough to admit it in a public survey. It's a problem in our culture. And so he says that the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. But he goes on and he says, nor idolaters. Now it's self-explanatory. Somebody who worships idols. An idol would be anything other than God. Uh, nor adulterers. Of course, we know what adultery is. But did you know that one survey says that nearly one-third of all Americans have had or are currently having a, a, an extramarital affair? And so this is a, a problem in our culture. And so he says, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers. Now here's where it gets interesting. He says, nor men who practice homosexuality. 
Now, here's why I say uh, that, that here's where it gets interesting. It gets interesting because different English translations render it differently. For example, uh, the New American Standard Bible would put it this way. It would say, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals. The New Living Translation would say those who are, who are male prostitutes or who practice homosexuality. But the Greek language here is actually making a distinction between male prostitutes versus homosexuality. Now, now why? Well, I, I mentioned earlier the, 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 the Temple of Aphrodite that, that housed a, a thousand temple prostitutes. But did you know that, that those temple prostitutes were both female prostitutes and male prostitutes? Now, the male prostitutes would actually dress up like women and then go out into the streets and sell themselves to men. And so that, that, that's the culture. You see, you have to understand that, that in ancient Greek philosophy, homosexual love was viewed as the, as the highest form of love. In fact, that's why that, that in, in most upper-class affluent Greek homes, uh, men not only had wives, but they also had a live-in male lover in the house as well. In fact, Bible commentator William Barclay points out that both Socrates and Plato were practicing homosexuals. And so he says that the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality or might be male prostitutes and homosexuality. And then he says, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers. Reviler is someone who's violent. Uh, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But, verse 11, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now notice, he says, and such were some of you. Notice, he does not say, you know, you used to do these things, you used to practice these actions. He doesn't say you, you, you used to behave this way. He says, such were some of you, implying that this is who they were, implying that, that, that their identity was in these lifestyles, that their identity was, was in these behaviors, that, that if, if they had a drinking problem, they identified as a drunkard, as an alcoholic. If, if they were violent, they identified as a reviler. And if they had male attraction, they identified as homosexual. He, he's, saying, he's saying, this is where your identity was. You, you, you were these things. Now, Christopher Yoon, uh, in his book titled Holy Sexuality, calls this a case of mistaken identity. Mistaken identity. In other words, if, 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 if your identity is in the things that you do, if your identity is in your lifestyle, or if your identity is in your attractions, then you have a case of mistaken identity. Now, Christopher Ewan, if you don't know his story, Christopher Ewan was a gay man who gave his life to Christ. Now, as the story goes, his mother was the first to become a Christian, and after she became a Christian, she started fervently praying for her son Christopher to become a Christian. And she prayed and prayed and prayed, and, and through a variety of circumstances that included going to prison for dealing drugs, Christopher Ewan ended up giving his life to Christ. And in the process, he discovered that he had been putting his identity in the wrong place. He discovered that his identity was not in his sexuality. Rather, his identity was in Christ. And this new identity compelled him to live a life of obedience to God. And, and a life obedient regardless of his sexual desires, regardless of his attractions. And this obedience led to a radically changed life where he understood that if, that if you're identifying uh, as, as this, or identifying as, a, if, if your identity comes from anything other than Jesus, you have a mistaken identity. 
And so in the same way, the Apostle Paul says, and such were some of you. He's saying, you know what? You have a new identity. Your identity is not in your sexuality. Your identity is in God. You are a child of God. You were created in the image of God. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. And so first, Paul reminds them who they were. This is what they were without Jesus. This is what they were before Jesus came into their life. But now they have a new identity. They, they have a, 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 they're a new creation. And so now as we pick it up in verses 12 through 17, now he talks to them about who they are. Who they are. Verse 12, he says, All things are lawful for me, but, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is, is, is meant for, for the stomach and stomach for food. And God will destroy one, I'm sorry, both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Now let's pause here. Now we notice in verse 12, at the beginning of verse 12, he says, all things are lawful for me. And we notice that that is in quotations. That is the, the editor's way of letting us know that Paul was quoting them. Paul was quoting the Corinthians. You see, uh, the, the Corinthians were the ones who were saying this. They, they were saying, all things are lawful for me. This was what they were saying to justify what they were doing. This was a phrase that they would say to justify their behavior, to justify how they were living. They're like, hey, now that I'm a Christian, all things are lawful for me. And now that I'm a Christian, I've been set free. I'm free to do whatever I want to do. All things are lawful for me. In fact, years ago, I used to counsel a guy that would quote this verse, among others, to, to justify smoking weed. You know, he'd be like, hey man, you know, because you know, smoke weed, you know, hey man, you know, I, you know, all things are lawful for me, bro. You know, and, and, and he's like, you know, I, you know, now that I'm a Christian, you know, I'm, I'm free to do this and, you know, and all things are lawful and, and, you know, and so if it's lawful in God's eyes, if it's legal in God's eyes, then I can do it. And, you know, that's kind of the Corinthians. They're like, you know, hey, all things are lawful. You know, I mean, you know, now, now that we're saved, you know, we're, 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 we can do these things. They're like, hey, you know, I, I, I'm a sinner saved by grace, but I'm still a sinner, so I'm going to keep sinning so I can keep getting grace. Or they might say, you know, hey, you know, what I'm doing is not illegal, it's lawful. And so now Paul responds to that by saying, you know, you might say all things are lawful for me, but then he says, but not all things are helpful. Some translations, not all things are beneficial, not all things are profitable. In, in effect, he's saying, you know what? Just because they legalized it doesn't mean that God blessed it. Just because it's legalized doesn't mean that God wants you to do it. Doesn't mean that it's good for you. Doesn't mean that it's beneficial for you. Doesn't mean that it's God's will for your life. And then he says in verse 13, he says, food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food. And again, that statement is in quotations as well. Because again, Paul was quoting them. In fact, historians tell us that this was a famous phrase. This was a, a popular phrase uh, th throughout the Greek world. Greeks would often say this uh, because what they meant by it is that, you know what? Uh, they, they would say, you know, sex is, is, is not an issue of, of, of morality. It's not an issue of right versus wrong. No, sex is just a normal function of the body. It's just a normal craving that has to be satisfied just like hunger is a normal craving. So the idea is, you know, that sex, whatever kind of sex it is, whether it's heterosexual or, or homosexual, they would just say, hey, sex in and of itself cannot be wrong. It, it can't be sinful because it's a natural desire, just like hunger is a natural desire. So how does Paul respond? Well, he responds at the end of verse 13 saying, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. 
Verse 14, he continues and says, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up in, 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 by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Now listen, that's your identity. Now that you're a Christian, you're a member of the body of Christ. That's who you are. That is your identity. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make the members of a prostitute? Never. Or, or do you not know that he who, who, who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it's written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. You know, it's interesting. Oftentimes, here's what happens. You know, when, when, when we get involved in some kind of sin, here's what happens. Typically, what happens is, is that we tend to forget that God is watching, that God's paying attention. You know, kind of like, like Moses, when, when Moses killed that Egyptian soldier who was abusing a, a fellow Hebrew, a fellow Jew, you know, Moses looked to the left and he looked to the right and, and, and he saw that nobody was watching. And then he killed the soldier and buried him. Now, he might've looked to the left and he might've looked to the right, but you know what? He did not look up. He forgot that God was watching. And in the same way, it reminds me of, of, of this kid that was in this private Catholic school and, and at lunch he went into the cafeteria. And at the, at the front of the table in the cafeteria was this big bowl of apples and one of the nuns put a sign on the front of it that said, only take one apple and remember, God is watching. And as he went through the line, he got to the end of the table and at the end of the table, there was this big bowl of candy bars. So he took out a piece of paper and a pen and he wrote a note and, and stuck it to it. And the note said, Take as many as you want. God's busy watching the apples. <laughs> In the same way, Paul is, is reminding the Corinthians that, that not only was God watching, but actually God was in them. Not only was God watching them, but God dwelled inside them. He dwells inside of you. And so what he's saying is that, you know what? When you go to that strip club, or, or in their context, when you go to that prostitute, just remember, God is in you, and so you're taking him with you there. Jesus is in you. He dwells in you. You're, you're bringing him with you there. And then he goes on to say with the, with the prostitute that you're becoming one in body with her. Now listen, in our culture, we live in a very loose sexual culture, right? I mean, we use, we use phrases like, you know, casual sex. We use phrases like, like, you know, it's just an affair or, you know, friends with benefits. Listen, none of those things are true. There, there's something different about sexual sin. Listen, according to the biblical definition of sex, frankly, there is no such thing as quote-unquote casual sex. It's never casual. The Bible says the two become one. That's what Paul just said, the two become one. Now he's quoting from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, where it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. You see, sex, the, the way God designed it, which is in the context of marriage between a man and a woman, but, but, but sex, the way God designed it it, 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 it becomes a blessing. It's a blessing because the two become one. The, 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 they have unity. They become one with each other. But outside of marriage, in other words, when it's not done God's way, then what was meant for a blessing ends up becoming a consequence because, you know, that, that old flame or, or, or that one-night stand ends up haunting you long after the breakup. And, and so much so that one day when you do get married, you end up bringing those past encounters into your new marriage. I think John MacArthur in his commentary makes a good point when he says, 
No sin that, that a person commits has more built-in pitfalls, problems, or destructiveness than sexual sin. It, it, it has broken more marriages, shattered more homes, and caused more heartache and disease, and destroyed more lives than alcohol and drugs combined. There's something different about sexual sin. You become one. And so having reminded them who they were, he now reminds them who they are. They are now members of the body of Christ. And now in verse 18, he now tells them how to deal with their old struggles, with their, with their old cravings, those old desires, how to deal with it. He says in verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Now, years ago, when I was a teenager, like, like 10 or 15 years ago, <clears throat> not really good with math, uh, but, uh, but when, I was, when I was a teenager, I, I'd studied taekwondo for a number of years, and, and my taekwondo instructor, Yun Sung Kim, uh, uh, would, would often tell us this. Now, I'm about to give an impersonation. It's not, not to be, you know, not, not, not meant out of derogatory whatever, uh, but, but you, you need to capture the moment. You need to be there. You need to, it's as if you're in the class. And so Yun Sung Kim, you know, he, 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 would, he would often turn to the class and say, you know what? There are two self-defense lessons. Two self-defense lessons. Self-defense lesson number one. Front kick, going hot as can, hot as can. Self-defense lesson number two. Turn and run, fast as can, fast as can. <laughs> now listen, that's not only good advice in a street fight, that's good advice in a spiritual fight. What does he say? He says, flee sexual morality. Flee temptation. Here's the idea. The idea is, you know what? When you see temptation coming, don't just stand there and say, you know what? I can face it. I can handle it. I'm strong enough. You know, I can, I can stand here and look at it. I can stare at it all day long and I won't give in. I won't, I won't have a weak moment. I won't fail. Are you stupid or something? I mean, you're just asking for trouble. You know, you know that, 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 that the longer you stand there, the, the, the more likely you are to fall. So get out. That's why he says flee sexual immorality. Flee temptation. Let me put this in a way that you might understand. Listen, if, if you're trying to lose weight and yet your weakness is donuts, then stop having quiet time at Krispy Kreme. <laughs> you know, I mean, if you're a recovering alcoholic, stop trying to reach people for Jesus at the bar. Stop putting yourself in harm's way. He says, flee temptation, flee immorality. So what Paul's saying to Corinthians is this. He's saying, you know what? For, for those of you that got saved out of, a, out of a background of sexual immorality, whatever form of immorality that might have been, it might have been prostitution, might have been sleeping around, it might have been adultery, it might have been porn. You know what? It might have even been same-sex attraction, whatever it is. He's saying, you know what? Stop putting yourself in harm's way. In other words, he's saying, you know what? Stop going to the temple of Aphrodite to have your Bible study with all the prostitutes. Flee temptation. That's how you handle it. Now with that, verses 19 and 20, we see that the key is to know your real identity. Your real identity. Verse 19, Paul says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. And so Paul says that, that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Listen, the Bible teaches that the moment you became a Christian, the moment you invited Jesus to come into your life, the moment you accepted Jesus as your Savior, in that moment, the Holy Spirit filled you. He came inside you. He now dwells in you. 
Acts chapter 7, verse 48, it says, However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands. Listen, he doesn't dwell in, in, in a concrete cathedral. He doesn't dwell in a, in a brick chapel. No, he dwells, the Bible says, inside of you. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, this really speaks of your new identity. And so what he's saying to the Corinthians is this. He's saying, you know what? Some of you before Christ, you, you were pagans. You, you were idol worshipers or you were adulterers or, or, or you were drunkards or, or you might have been a male prostitute or a female prostitute or whatever it was. That's what you were. But now you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. That's who you are. Again, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Listen to this. Your identity is not in what you used to do. Your identity is in him who changed you. Listen to this. You're not defined by what you do. You're defined by he who dwells inside of you. But here's the problem with the Corinthian church. With the Christians living in the city of Corinth, their problem was, was that even though they are now Christians, even though they are now a new creation, they still had the same old struggles. Sound like anybody else in the room? Even though now they're, they're Christians and they're following Jesus, even though they have a new heart, the problem is they had the same old flesh with the same old cravings. So in other words, those who came out of, uh, who were saved out of alcoholism still craved that old buzz. Uh, those with a violent background still had that short fuse. And those with an adulterous past or, 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 or with porn addictions or, or those who were sleeping around or even those with same-sex attraction, guess what? They still had those attractions. They still had those cravings. They still had those desires. And this is why Paul reminds them back in verse 11, and he says, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. See, what these Corinthian Christians needed to hear more than anything else is that they were a new creation. They needed to hear that, that they had been changed, they had been transformed by Jesus Christ. They needed to hear that your old cravings do not define you, your old addictions do not define you, your old attractions do not define you, but rather the Holy Spirit who now dwells inside you defines you. That's what they needed to hear. Now, with that, I, I want to address what I think is, is, a, is a hypocritical double standard in the church today. And that is that we often view heterosexual sin differently than homosexual sin. In fact, quite frankly, we, we often treat homosexual sin as if it's worse than heterosexual sin. But as I read verses 9 and 10, it seems to me that they both equally keep you out of the kingdom of heaven, don't they? Now, I mentioned Christopher Ewan earlier. Now, Christopher Ewan, again, in his book, Holy Sexuality, he asks a, a, a key question. He asks, what is God's standard for sexuality? What is God's standard for sexuality? Now, you might immediately think, well, it's, it's heterosexuality. Now, again, heterosexuality would be, you know, being attracted to someone of the opposite gender. But, but, but when you think about it, that, that's, a, that's an awfully broad category, right? That's an awfully broad standard, right? I mean, think about it. You, you could have a guy who, who you know, is, is sleeping with a half a dozen women, and that would be heterosexuality. Likewise, you could have a married man who's, who's cheating on his wife with another woman, and that, too, would also be heterosexuality. And likewise, you could have a, a guy who's, who's living with the woman he's not married to. Maybe they have children together, but they're not married, and that, too, would be heterosexuality. 
But uh, the, the thing is, is that all three of those categories, the Bible would say were sinful in God's eyes. So here's the thing. When you think about it, God would never use such a broad category that could, in, that, that, that could involve uh, different forms of sin within it to be his perfect standard for sexuality. So if it's not heterosexuality, and it's certainly not homosexuality, well then, what is it? What is God's standard for sexuality? Now, Christopher Ewan in his book would, would say that the answer is holy sexuality. Holy sexuality. Now, now what is holy sexuality? Well, now, when you read the Bible, when you read through the Word of God, when you read the Scriptures, you're going to say that there's only two paths for sexuality. Number one, if, 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 if you're single, well, then, then how should you live as a Christian? Well, you, well, as a Christian, you should be sexually abstinent to honor God. You honor God with your body by being sexually abstinent. But if you're married, well, then you honor God with your body by being faithful to the one that you're married to, being faithful to your spouse, and so the standard is, is for, for God, sexuality is holy sexuality. It's, it's, it's honoring God with your body. I think that's, that's encompassed back in verse 13. Notice back at the end of verse 13, Paul says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And then at the end of, of, of the chapter, he says, so glorify God in your body. And so we, we honor God with our body. We glorify God in our body when we, as, as, a, as a Christian single, remain abstinent. And we glorify God with our body when we, as a Christian married person, stay faithful to our spouse. Now, an, another kind of hypocritical double standard among the church today is, is, you know, sometimes when a gay person does come to Christ, when a gay person does become a Christian and they, and they turn their lives to Jesus... Deep down, some of us start to think things like, well, you know what? If they really are saved, if they really did become a Christian, if, if Jesus really did change them, well, then instantly they should lose their, their, their same-sex attraction. You know, like instantly, they, they should just automatically like, like become heterosexual, just like poof, instamatic, you're a heterosexual. But, but frankly, it doesn't always work that way. In fact, rarely does it work that way. It might happen on a rare instance, but typically that's not how it happens. But when you think about it, we don't place that same standard with, with other lifestyles, do we? You know, I mean, you know, take alcoholism, for example. You know, when, when somebody who's an alcoholic comes to Christ, now it might very well be that, that maybe that they, they instantly lose their desire to drink alcohol and they're like just instantly relieved of it. That does happen from time to time, but it rarely happens. In fact, more often than not, typically that person will struggle with that desire for the rest of their life. In fact, we even have a phrase that we use today. We, we often say, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. You know, and, and the same is true with a heterosexual. Maybe a heterosexual person before Christ was living in sin. They, they were living in immorality. They were sleeping around or they were doing this and doing that. But now they've come to Christ. They've become a Christian. Well, listen, just because they came to Christ doesn't mean they're never going to struggle with lust again. Doesn't mean they're never going to have an impure thought. Doesn't mean they're not going to have these struggles again. And yet we kind of have this unfair, uh, you know, this, 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 this biased way that we, that, we, that we view things. This double standard. And listen, this is why the Bible tells us that the call of Christ is to pick up our cross daily and die to ourselves. Why? Because like I said, we might have new hearts, but we still have the same old flesh. We have to die daily to this thing called flesh. 
It still has the same cravings. It still has the same desires. And so every day we have to die to those desires. Whatever those desires might be. It might be for a substance. It might be for a relationship. It might be for an opposite gender relationship or a same-sex gender relationship. But whatever it is, we have to die to it daily. New hearts, old flesh. Now, Christopher Ewan also says that he has a friend who, who, who became a Christian. He was a gay man who, who became a Christian. And obviously, he, he never had any, any attraction towards, towards you know, women, towards anybody of the opposite gender. And so he just figured as a Christian, he, he would just live the rest of his life as a single man and stay abstinent. And he was happy with that. He just wanted to honor God. Now, he was also part of a, of a great church. And so uh, as he was serving in that church, he happened to meet a young lady there who, who was a new believer. She came out of, a, out of a broken past and had several toxic relationships. And so she, she, she just vowed that she was going to not date anyone and just focus on her relationship with God. So the two of them met, they became friends, and they felt really safe around each other. So there was none of that, that, that awkwardness, none of that, that weird tension that happens like, you know, does she like me or does he like me? You know, he, he, he knew that, that she wasn't looking for a relationship and she knew he wasn't interested in women. And so they just felt really, really safe around each other. But the longer and longer they were friends, something started to change. He began to notice things about her. He began to notice, you know, like, like her hair was pretty. That she smelled good all the time. And she had curves. And suddenly he started becoming attracted to her. And so after a while, he worked up enough courage to one day ask her out on a date. And then after they were dating for quite some time, he then worked up enough courage to propose to her. And then on, on their wedding night, he then turned to his new bride and he said, Honey, I, I can't explain this. I'm not attracted to any other women. I'm only attracted to you. So when Christopher Yoon's often asked if he'll ever get married one day, he says he's open to it. He's not attracted right now to the opposite gender, but he's open to it. He, he, you know, if the Lord did for his friend and does that for him, he's open to it. He doesn't need to be attracted to all women, just one. And so the Apostle Paul says in verse 11, such were some of you. Let me give you one more example of a such were, some of you. It's a story of a man named Beckett Cook. Beckett Cook, you can look him up on YouTube. Beckett Cook uh, was a gay man living in Los Angeles, and, and one day he's in a, in a coffee house in Los Angeles, and he notices this, this, this man uh, in the coffee house by the name of Tim Chaddock. And he has his Bible, and he's doing a Bible study. He has a bunch of other books, and, and one of them is a commentary in Romans. It's a book that, that boldly said across the cover, Romans. So, so Beckett uh, Cook walks by and, and says, Romans? What in the world is that? So they start a conversation, and, and, and Tim Chaddock explains that he's a pastor of a church, and so they start talking for a while. So they, they, they walk out the door, and they're now in the, kind of the courtyard of the coffee house, and there's a group of young people there uh, from Tim Chaddock's church having a Bible study themselves. So Tim introduces them to Beckett, and, and they start talking, and then Tim Chaddock leaves, and, and, and Beckett Cook, he just kind of sticks around. He's having a great conversation. They're, they're treating him kindly. Uh, they're being respectful. They're, they're showing him love. There's no judgment. And then one of them invited him to come to church. Now, they didn't know if he'd come to church, actually. But, you know, Beckett had, hey, it was, just, it was just so overcome by, by their kindness and by their love and their lack of judgment, he thought he'd come and check out the church service. Now, when he got there, uh, he heard a sermon that clearly called sin, sin, clearly called wrong behavior, wrong behavior, but the sin also clearly declared that Jesus could save you from your sin. And so that day, Beckett uh, Beckett Cook went to church uh, as a practicing gay atheist and he came out as a new creation. And now he's gone to seminary and he serves in the ministry. Listen to me. 
Your sin does not define you. Your past does not define you. Your old lifestyle does not define you. Your, your attractions do not define you. The Holy Spirit who dwells inside of you defines you. You are a new creation. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Calvary Brighton podcast. To find out more about our ministry in Brighton, Colorado, go to calvarychapelbrighton.com.